mission statement, but I can take it off for a few minutes, hopefully without messing up my mic. We're good? Excellent. Um, well, I do come this morning kind of kicking and screaming, I have to be honest. Um, I really don't want to speak this message. It's um, one that I've been putting off for ages. Back in March, I was asked to speak here. Um, and then COVID struck. So I had this message on John 17 all queued up and ready to go. I was quite happy with it. And then um, we thought that Chris, being the senior pastor, should probably be the peop- one who addressed the people on the first Sunday when COVID, uh, the crisis occurred. So I had it ready. And then I was to speak again in early June, and I was still going to use that message because it was ready. It wouldn't take much work. Uh, And then we found out that we could actually start gathering publicly here in this auditorium again. And so um, I got preempted again. They thought Chris should probably be the guy who addressed people. And Chris Schmish, that's what I think. Um, (laughs) But no, I think it was right that he would be the one who speaks and addresses people, particularly in that time of crisis. But I began to think about different angles to take different passages I might like to speak about. Uh, But for whatever reason, kept coming back to this idea of how we are shaped by suffering. And I kept saying, Lord, I really don't want to speak about that. But here I am, and I guess I'm going to speak on this. Uh, And actually, this message isn't so much about suffering, uh, but how we find hope. And we're eventually going to get there this morning. In John 16, 33, Jesus says this, In this world you will have many troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. To be sure, none of us goes looking for suffering or hardship. It's the gift that nobody wants. Except maybe the Apostle Paul who said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, which we all do. (laughs) But then he went on to say also, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, Philippians 3.10. So I've come to the conclusion that we don't get to taste of the greatness of the power of the resurrection without resistance and refining and struggle along the way. And as much as we'd like to avoid pain and suffering, it finds us. Let me just get rid of this mic that Steve uh, left behind. I was afraid Steve was going to leave quite a few other things behind by the time you got off here, buddy, so that's good. Um, So according to Pete Scazzaro, who's the author of Emotionally Healthy Discipleship and also a pastor in New York City, he said there are three classic movements in the spiritual life. There's orientation, there's disorientation, and then there's reorientation. And these things occur again and again repeatedly throughout our lives. We go through these things. We try not to. We try to avoid it, but it keeps happening. Orientation is where we build our lives around things that make us happy, things that give us good feelings. We want a life that's comfortable, peaceful, and free of stress. We want to avoid difficulty, pain, uh, all those things, suffering, We choose a nice place to live, good friends, and we choose a spouse, if that's applicable, who will make us happy. And we try to orient our life around these things that bring peace and help us to avoid pain 
And that's all pretty normal, and we try to protect our kids from the same. That's how we orient our lives. But then disorientation occurs. Collectively, for people at times, like in times of a pandemic, it throws off our sense of balance, and we're not, not quite sure how to operate. What do we do in this new reality? It causes us to be unsteady. It also occurs for people individually because of things that are out of our control or sometimes as the consequence of our poor choices and even sin. It isn't just COVID that's disorienting, but economic uncertainty, racial injustice, mental health struggles, uh, when we don't know what school will look like in the fall and we're sending our kids, or we're a child and we're going to a school and we don't quite know what that's going to be like, it can cause some anxiety. If you're a graduate, uh, and there were all sorts of people who missed out on that great graduate experience this past spring and summer, uh, and they don't know what going into university is going to look like. There's just so much uncertainty. And then we get news of a health struggle or the fact that we might have cancer, or you fill in the blank. There's all sorts of things that can go wrong that disorient us, and they can last days, months, or even years, and the effects can last a lifetime. And frequently in this stage, God seems rather distant, and we wonder, where is he? That's quite a common thing, uh, particularly if we've suffered some trauma. Where is God in all of this? And then reorientation happens. It occurs when things start to stabilize and a new normal emerges. We figure out how to operate in this new reality. We adjust. We develop a new way of understanding our lives and our relationship with God changes by deepening it's not what we go looking for, but it's often the result if we navigate well through that time. I was reading of a story recently, or hearing of a story about a man named Steve Bass, who in 1984, he was a billionaire, and he took $30 million, and in the hills of California, they created something called the Biosphere 2. What they did is they, uh, the goal was to build an ecological system in, in a perfect bubble that they could hopefully one day replicate for life on Mars. So they recycled water and they raised food and they grew plants, but then something weird happened. The trees that they were growing began to topple over before they could re reproduce or bear fruit. And the reason was they discovered that the absence of strong winds weakened the trees. The roots didn't go down deeply. You get the point, I'm sure, that resilience is built when the winds of hardship occur in life. Resilience is developed, again, if navigated well, through suffering. Isaiah 43, 1 to 3, we're going to read in a few minutes, and I just want you to understand this background before I read it, is um, Isaiah is appearing to the Israelites, and these are people who have been um, in captivity and enslavement by the Assyrians previously. 
And now they're in captivity by the Babylonians who did some horrible things and actually carried them off and enslaved them in a different country. And then Isaiah comes to them and he says, okay, you've been enslaved by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and now, guess what? I'm going to send the Persians to conquer the Babylonians and then they're going to be the ruler over you. So imagine you're the Israelites and you're thinking, oh my goodness, could it get any worse? How long does this go on? And if you read in the scriptures throughout the Psalms, if you read Habakkuk, you'll hear that similar refrain time and time again, Lord, how long? And that's what Isaiah, Isaiah seems to be getting at here. And here's the word uh, from the Lord that is actually good news for the Israelites. O Israel, the one who formed you says, do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What God is saying to them in a roundabout Hebrew kind of way is that I have not forget, forgotten you, I have not abandoned you. Take heart. It echoes the words of Jesus that would come later. In late June, one second here, you get very thirsty when you're behind a mask. In late June, um, we decided to cut down this linden tree that has been in the center of our backyard ever since 2001 when we moved into our house. It was a place where I loved to sit and read or lay on a hammock on a hot summer day with a cold drink. It was a refuge of sorts. The problem was that the tree had become too large for our backyard. Its roots were spreading out everywhere and wreaking havoc and it was infested with aphids, which were destroying furniture and awnings with their droppings. So on the given day, within three hours, the tree removal service showed up, came in, chopped down, and carried off our tree. I wasn't prepared for what happened next. Where there once was a tree that provided shade and refuge from the sun, there was now only a barren backyard. There was no protection. It triggered for me all sorts of memories of the difficulties and losses and suffering that had taken place in my own life over the past two years. And by way of illustration, I'm going to tell you about some of them um, just so that you can know I am not just saying these things this morning that I'm saying without having actually experienced them. So in June 2018, I spoke here at the church the week this happened, I suffered a knee injury where I tore my um, ACL, which is a horrible injury uh, and takes an awful long time to recover from. During that same period of time, shortly after, uh, my sister Wendy 
suffered a heart attack uh, and some trauma and was in a coma in Mississauga General Hospital. And so during one particularly low time in my life in that period, um, Joanne and I traveled to Mississauga and in a wheelchair we navigated Mississauga General Hospital uh, where I saw my sister in a coma. She passed away a few weeks later. Then came the death of a treasured uncle. He was 93. Um, he was a great jokester, but he had phenomenal character. He was a great man. And then shortly after that, one year to the day after my sister died, my mother died. We had worked for a few years to try and get her to, to move into a retirement home where we felt she would be safer and better cared for. And she moved into the retirement home and then two weeks later passed away. And then also I have a brother who's in the end stages of uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and another brother suffering with Alzheimer's and so on. <laughs> I have a large family. Lots can go wrong. But you get the point. And I met with Stan Cox for coffee, Stan the man, during that time, and he said, you've suffered your own personal anus horribleness." <laughs> I said, yes, indeed. And it's not something that I moved through quickly. You can imagine how tremendously disorienting it was. And I've learned and continue to learn a great deal in this period. In the spring, I felt like I was getting reoriented after much emotional and soul work, and then came COVID. I should say, uh, because my wife works for Southwestern Public Health uh, in the area of infectious diseases. So you can imagine some of the stress that's been around our home and yours. So there we were. And I know many of you have had some difficult struggles, different, some worse, some better. Um, it's different for everybody. We experience these things differently but they have this effect of leaving us bewildered and very disoriented. Suffering is very real. And it's not particular to just the one age group of people. You can be a young child who suffers, witnessing traumatic events, um, being disappointed in different things. Um, and it happens for sure to people in their senior years as well. So, where do we go from here to cultivate a sense of hope? I want you to turn with me or look on your device or watch up on the screen the words of Romans 8, 15 to 28, and I'm going to read them. Similar to the Israelites that Isaiah spoke to, the people in Rome at that time when Paul writes this book are troubled. They're being persecuted. Um, it's not an easy time by any stretch to be a believer uh, in the Roman Empire. And Paul writes these words, and I want, as I read them, I want you to think about what words or concepts inspire hope for you. What words engender hope for you? Let me read Romans 8.15. So... You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. 
Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are God's children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. That's a long passage, but there's a lot of good stuff in it. And I'm going to just bring a few things out of there. And, and um, a couple of weeks ago, I decided to do some research around the area of hope uh, and if you actually look at all the passages in Scripture that talk about hope, um, you'll be overwhelmed <laughs> in a very good way. But Romans 16 is, is central, and it's a beautiful one. One of the theologians that I like listening to, uh, his podcast is a man named N.T. Wright. And if you like podcasts, uh, N.T. Wright is an English fellow, and the podcast is called Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Um, and, and they mean anything. And it's beautiful. So somebody asked him recently after one of his talks, um, what our suffering as Christian, or sorry, what our response should be as Christian people to the COVID crisis and to suffering in general. And his response is not one that I think we think of often. Uh, he replied by saying, um, first of all, we need to 
lament. Lament. You don't hear that very often. Uh, far too often, we just figure we're going to pull up our pants, um, you know, we're going to gird ourselves and we're going to walk on strongly in the face of adversity. And this man who's a seasoned man in his late 70s, I believe, said, no, first of all, we need to lament. Two-thirds of the book of Psalms are laments. It's where people are crying out in one way or another, desperately asking if life will be good again. And there's four characteristics of lament that I'll get into in a moment. But lament is more than just the expression of sorrow or the venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain. And it has a unique purpose. Trust. And if you've lamented much, and I hope you have in your life, um, you don't start out by feeling good and trusting in God. You're actually pouring out your complaint. So the four steps are this, is that we turn to God, which seems obvious, but it's not always obvious when we're in crisis and when we're suffering. We'd almost rather do anything else. First, we turn to God. Secondly, we pour out a heartfelt complaint. And some of you have read those passages in Scripture, like Habakkuk, uh, like the psalmists who say, Lord, how long? How long must I endure this before you act? Where are you? Why do people around me seem to be prospering and you're not doing anything? Uh, and here's the thing that we can get a clue from those passages in Scripture is that those people don't hold back. <laughs> They're not worried about offending God with their complaints. They're pouring it out in a heartfelt sense. So pour it out. Third, we boldly ask for help. Help us, Lord, to endure this. Help us to gain perspective. And then fourth, we choose to trust. This is our destination for our laments. The psalmist says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And I want to say thank you um, to Jeff this morning too because uh, our timing was a bit, I couldn't get what I was speaking to him in time for him to choose songs. Uh, I just gave him a general theme and, and they really fit together well. So thank you. But as we were singing or humming, I was trying not to sing, but it, I, I broke out a time or two. Um, but as I was doing that, I was reminded of these great promises throughout scripture which those songs come from, right? They inform what we sing, so thank you. But more than the stages of grief, this prayer language of lament makes us renew our commitment to trust in God as we navigate the brokenness of life. We are also sustained by the Spirit. There's something mysterious that happens in times of disorientation or times of suffering. Unexpected gifts arrive and are seen in very difficult times and circumstances. I think that's because we're vulnerable, but these moments and conversations that we probably don't have at any other time or don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable enough, vulnerable enough to speak actually come out. And you have these conversations with people where you're remarkably honest, uh, where you see reconciliation between people, um, where you have conversations in what are called thin places, 
where the difference between what we're experiencing in earth and on heaven seemed very thin and actually seemed to collide. And sometimes there's no other way to get there but through suffering. I was meeting during this dark um, night of my soul with a Christian counselor named Duncan. And I was explaining to him about how far away God seemed. By the way, that's a pretty common experience in situations. But strangely, at that same time, I was also recognizing that God was at work around me. I would say God seemed so very far, but then as I thought longer and pondered or people would ask me, I was able to connect that, yeah, God was still at work. And Duncan suggested I tell him more about that, so I began to talk for a little while, mentioning moments of seeing God at work, those thin places. And Duncan responded by saying, you realize you just mentioned 11 instances of seeing God at work. It was wonderful. I hadn't thought of it, and it actually buoyed my spirit. In times of disorientation, we are sustained by the Holy Spirit in at least two ways. First of all, the Holy Spirit resides in us and gives us a foretaste of future glory when we will be released from sin, which weighs us down as it weighs down creation and releases us from suffering. And in the words of Revelation, we look forward to that day when there will be no more suffering, no more crying, no more tears, when suffering will be a thing of the past. We get a foretaste of that because of the Holy Spirit that resides in us when we surrender our lives to Christ. Second, there are also times when we are at an absolute loss to know what to pray. In fact, praying may be the last thing that we feel like doing. In those moments, we can rest in God's presence and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to the Father for us because we haven't got a clue what to say. Do you ever sit before God and struggle with, oh, what do I need to pray about? Um, here's here's a, a, a good practice to start. I think, just be quiet and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to the Father on your behalf. Listen. It takes an awful lot of pressure off. And the Holy Spirit knows what should be said to God far better than we do. During these days of the COVID crisis, I think many of us are, are at a loss to know why we are feeling anxious and disoriented but I find it greatly comforting that we can sit and be quiet and ask the Holy Spirit to pray for us. And maybe you need to sit with a psalm and, and pray that through, like Psalm 91 or 77, um, just to set your heart at ease. Finally, and we're going to be wrapping up shortly, there's a temptation in suffering to be embarrassed by the pain and to try and hide it. This is where I love the Japanese art of kintsugi. It's the art of putting broken pottery pieces back together with gold, built on the idea that in embracing flaws and imperfections, you can create an even stronger, more beautiful piece of art. Something even more beautiful is created. Uh, if you can move on to that next picture, please. 
you'll see that bowl there that is inlaid with gold and becomes something more striking. So when we are suffering, what we really want to know is, can life be good again? Will I enjoy life again? Where does my hope come from? And I walked, as I've walked through this valley, I've recognized that my emotional um, scale is probably shrunk. I wasn't experiencing really high highs or really low lows, partly because I was afraid to let my heart go there. And I'm still working at that and trying to reorient my life toward that with God's help. So what social scientists say about how hope is cultivated requires two things. It requires a pathway and it requires agency. And I'll explain what those mean. Pathway means somebody who's um, had trauma or suffering in their life needs a vision for how it could be better. And they also need determination. That's what the social sciences teach us. And that's good. So if you have somebody that's suffering in your life and they happen to be talking to you, uh, you can encourage them to think about, well, what would a preferred vision of the future look like for you? How will you get there? How can I help? And try to instill in them a sense of determination. They promote health, these things. They promote a good sense of hope. But Mark McMinn, who's a Christian psychologist, and he's written a book called The Science of Virtue, builds further on these necessary traits by suggesting that as Christians, we have two things above and beyond pathway and agency that help us tremendously. Number one, we have a pathway or vision because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we have tremendous hope that these painful things in life do not have the last say because our roots go stronger because of the resurrection. That eternal perspective in life makes the world of difference. To know that this isn't the way that it's always going to be. And Paul, in fact, says um, these present sufferings actually, and this is hard to imagine, these present sufferings actually pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed. Can you imagine what that might be like? They pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed. That's something that we have on our side. Also, research has shown that people who practice, purposely practice spiritual disciplines like prayer and scripture meeting, reading and meeting with other believers are far better off than those who have none of those things. Those are helpful things. And in the literature, they call it spiritual practices, but the research was actually done on Christian people of faith, interestingly enough. Also, our relationship with Christ may change during orientation, but it can become far richer, far better, and much more beautiful than it was before. Nobody goes looking for pain. Nobody in their right mind. But if we allow God to work in those times of disorientation, he reorients us until something beautiful can be made. Would you guys stand with me for a minute? This has been a heavy topic, so I actually want us to finish with something a bit lighter. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to ask you, because I'm... You know, my history is in youth ministry. 
Uh, I'm actually going to ask you to act out a verse with me. Are you up for the challenge? Okay, and we did this years ago in this church, but hopefully most of you have forgotten. So uh, this is from 2 Corinthians 4.18b. And, and when I was a, a young, younger person, there used to be a commercial on television with Ricardo Montalban. And he would talk about these cars that had wonderful Corinthian leather uh, in them. So um, this is what we're going to do. So if you could go on to that verse there. There we are. So I want you to do this with me. Two, Corinthians, four, 18b. Okay? Yeah, that's all you need, okay? Four, what, and point to the light bulb because they have watts. So four, what, is seen, is temporary. But, what, is unseen, and here's where you need to take a deep breath, <laughs> is eternal. <laughs> okay, now we're going to put it all together, and you've got to hold that last word even longer, all right? Second, Corinthians 4, 18b. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Remember, there's a God who's with you as you suffer. Blessings on you.